This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. At Journey 66, we like to say that there are two mountains to climb when you commit to writing a book, whether you self-publish or publish with a traditional publisher. The first, of course, is writing the book itself. No small project. It's a high climb. The second mountain is promoting your book, and that may be even a more difficult climb than writing the book itself. And while it might be tempting to wait until the book comes out to think about how to promote it, it's much more productive to create a plan with some goals and execute the plan. Today, Dave and I have the wonderful opportunity of interviewing John Lockhorst, a leadership coach, trainer, and keynote speaker. John is launching his book this month, Mission Critical Leadership, How Smart Managers Lead Well in All Directions. And we're so excited to hear about what he's learning. We love John's descriptive phrase on his LinkedIn profile. I partner with organizations to develop leaders everyone wants to follow, build teams no one wants to leave, and deliver exceptional results. What an inspirational sentence. John, welcome to this podcast. We can't wait to learn more about your book. Thanks, Melissa. It's great to be with you and Dave today. Before we jump into the interview, Dave and I want to start out this podcast like we start out each podcast, which is sharing some commentary about where we've made progress over the past week. It doesn't have to be about writing. It generally isn't in my life. So Dave, do you wanna go first? I will do so. I made progress this week in how I am not interjecting myself into my child's educational process. And so I'm patting myself on the back. And if you see me break my arm, it's because I've been working so hard to pat myself on the back. So I have a, our youngest is 12 years old and the COVID pandemic has been just a train wreck for both teachers and students. It's teachers are really going through it. And, and so are students. And one of the things on the student side is that teachers, I think, are trying to create busy work and lots of work to make sure that they feel like their students are progressing, right? And I get that. But some of these classes, like Chorus, for example, has so much busy work that at the end of her two semesters of Chorus, I'm pretty sure she'll hate music in general. It's just miserable. And she's got a great teacher, but it's, it's miserable. But what happens is you, you miss assignments. So this is hybrid learning. Sometimes you're in class two days a week, but three days you're working at home. And so when you're working at home, you're working via Google Classroom. You'll submit the, the assignments. Well, between the stuff you submit when you go to hybrid, when, you go, when you're actually physically in school, and the time that you actually submit it when you're at home working three days a week, there's a lot that gets missed. And so there's a lot of back, there's a lot of missing assignments. And so you see their grades online and, and Jay just has so many missing assignments and she's been doing the work or she thinks she's done the work. So anyway, so I've been advocating on her behalf. I'll ping the teacher and say, hey, did you receive this? I think she did it. And teacher will come back, go, no, she didn't, she didn't send it. But anyway, so I have tried to back off now and say, okay, Jay, you need to advocate for yourself. When you see a missing assignment, I'm not going to email your teacher. You need to email your teacher. So I feel like I'm making progress. I still lean in from time to time, but 
today I feel really good about myself. <laughs> so at our household, we call the person who intervenes the HC double and my husband is guilty of this, the helicopter chief operating officer. <laughs> 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 it seems like every meal, like Davis, have you done this, Dave? Because my son is at home during his college, his sophomore college semesters. And it's always, have you done this? Have you done that? I'm like, calm down, Helly, calm down, Mr. Helicopter. <laughs> so maybe he needs to take a page from your book, Dave. That's great. How about you, Melissa? So mine is very mundane. I have a 1920s bungalow and we have an a, and it has a basement and it's unfinished and it's dank, dark, horrible to go down into. And the only thing that's really down there is our laundry room. And so I'm not down there very often. And so I go down, I'm like, oh, this is a disaster. This is a mess. And then I'm, you know, I'm not do down there anymore because I'm not doing laundry, but it just has gotten so bad. So on Sunday, I spent the day taking my first step towards organizing and cleaning the basement, which is not a fun task, but it is definitely something that needs to be done. And I'm hoping that I can build on that energy and continue <laughs> some progress next weekend. <laughs> wow. Uh, that sounds really boring and mundane. <laughs> well, right. And our basement, ugh, it's just, it's dank. It's horrible. So it's not a place I want to spend a Sunday afternoon, but it needed to be That's done. Great. That's great. What about you, John? Do you have any area that you've made progress? I'm sure it's got to be more interesting than working on a basement. <laughs> well, I, I would say my biggest progress was not making much progress at all because uh, over the last week I was on vacation and, and maybe that's the most important progress is the non-progress. Now, I wasn't able to completely go off the grid when you're in the midst of trying to get a book published. Uh, you've got to be in tune with uh, your publisher and editor and all that kind of thing. But uh, for the most part, we were able to get away with uh, our youngest, or our oldest son and his family and spend some time in warm, sunny Florida. And so poolside, beachside, just a chance to kick back and relax. So that, that's been my biggest progress. That's absolutely something to praise yourself for, because when we live in this email world where we always have access to our work world, turning it off is so difficult to do. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. We would like to start out this interview by just hearing a little bit about what you do as a leadership coach. Tell us about that area of your profession and your life and what makes you passionate about leadership coaching and consulting. I'll take the second part of the question first. I think I've always been a student of leadership. In fact, I can trace a lot of those thoughts about leadership back all the way to my middle school days and just thinking about what, what it was it that made some teams really successful and some teams not. And as I got into workplaces and charitable organizations, you know, why is it that some people seem to really thrive and grow and others not so much? And it really all came back to this concept of leadership. And so I've been a believer in one of John Maxwell's mantras for, you know, really my entire life. And that's that, you know, everything rises and falls on leadership. You know, it's one of the things that he says often. And I found that to be very true, no matter what sphere of life that, uh, that you might be in. And as I was sensing and, and assessing what was going to be the last season of my career, I'm not at retirement age, but I'm getting closer to where I could retire. I don't see myself ever retiring in the traditional sense of the word, but I wanted to see an area that I could really invest in that would make a difference for the future. And 
you know, as I was entering that phase, I gained a new title and that title was Papa. Being a grandfather to now four littles that we absolutely love and adore and thinking about the world that they're growing up in. What can I do to make this a better place? You know, we're going to need better communities, better schools. You know, Dave, you were talking about school life, uh, you know, better churches, better uh, youth sports and activities, and then eventually the workplaces that they will go to work in. And, uh, you know, going back to what Maxwell said, you know, everything rises and falls on leadership. For any of those places, any of those venues to be better, it's going to require leadership. And so I looked at that and said, if I can in, in really invest myself in developing better leaders, and you, you know, essentially shared my mission statement earlier, Melissa, mm -hmm. I see that as a way to, to make that contribution. So that's a big part of the reason why I've always had that passion for leadership development. But I think, you know, in terms of the role itself of being a leadership coach, it's coming alongside of leaders in a variety of different places, different types of organizations, different levels within organizations, and, and helping them to employ their signature strengths. You know, what is it that they can do to bring value to their team, value to their organization, the stakeholders, the constituents that they serve, and, and, and then really help them to advance in their leadership, whether that means getting promoted to the next level or just getting better at what they're doing. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I use the layperson's definition of coaching. It's helping people to follow through on their own good intentions, even if that means helping them to take a step back and determine what those intentions are. And that's certainly true from a leadership perspective. That is a great, uh, great definition, actually, the lay, the lay definition of, of coaching. I really like that. So, do, so, John, do you recall the first time you thought, I really want to write a book? Was that something that you've always wanted to do? Did it, did it arise when you started this uh, next phase of life? And how long from that first thought to when the idea for your book came to mind to, to now when you are now in the middle of publishing the book? My guess is that there have been fleeting thoughts over the years at different points of my career where I, I might meet an author or I might read a book and think about, well, what if I wrote a book someday? But I, I don't know that I really gave it serious consideration until about five years ago, I was in the middle of my master's program. I've got a master's in organizational leadership and was working on a project in one of my final classes. And it's this theme that's part of my book about leading well in all directions. And as I was doing the research, some of the assessments around that, I started thinking about, you know, could this turn into a book? And so that was probably the first time I gave it serious thought. And then when that accelerated was about somewhere in the two to three year time frame after that, I took that concept of leading well in all directions, did a day long training experience with one of my healthcare clients. And, and they really used that day long experience as a tool to leverage a year long campaign to reduce turnover. And they went from one of the, the worst turnover ratios in terms of their organization to one of the best within their broader organization. And that was what gave me the thought, okay, I think I'm on, onto something here that has some value and I really should give serious thought to turning this into a book. And then 
within about, oh, I'd say a year after that, one of my mentors, Mark LeBlanc, who's a, a legend in the professional speaking world, basically lit a fire under my rear end and said, John, you need to turn that into a book and you need to get that done in the next 12 months. And I was like, okay, I'm moving, I'm moving forward. So I think those were really the, the pivotal moments that got me to, uh, to move forward with this whole project. John, could you talk a little bit about the thesis of your book, the idea you talked about, this idea of leading in all directions. So what are all directions? What do you mean by that? And what is the larger big idea of the book? Really, the book is in response to a question. You know, you could call it a rhetorical question or a hypothetical question. It was what I wrestled with during that grad school project. And the question is this, is it possible to be a good boss and still underperform and even fail as a leader within your organization? Now, I've answered that question, yes, many times over. Through my own experience as a leader, I certainly found that to be true, where you can be a good boss and still underperform on a broader level as a, as a leader. And I've seen that as well with a lot of my client experiences. One of my coaching conversations just this morning, uh, that was part of that topic, is it takes more than just being a good boss to be an effective leader within an organization. And that's especially true if you want to ascend through the ranks, if you want to advance, you want to get promoted to those higher levels of leadership. So most leadership development is focused on being a good boss. It's about the downstream view within an organizational hierarchy. But the best leaders learn how to lead well in all directions. They're able to lead upward to their own boss and their own superiors. They can lead effectively across the organization among their peers. And of course, all leadership starts with self-leadership. So that really is the premise of the book in terms of those all directions. It's not just downstream your team, your direct reports that you need to lead, but you've got to be able to lead well in these other directions as well which requires different disciplines, different habits, different mindsets and behaviors. So John, you said that you went about writing your book in a 12 month period, is that right? Did it actually take 12 months or did it take longer or a shorter period? That's a tricky question, Melissa, and I get that quite often. How long did it take you to write your book? And my response is always, I've been writing this book for well over 30 years because I think it's really come through my entire career. And the actual sitting down and writing the book was more of a culmination of all of those experiences and pulling that together. Uh, you know, I think from the moment that I made the decision and decided on working with the publisher to having the actual book published will end up having been about 13 or 14 months, a uh, little longer than what I had expected, but that's because, you know, as you well know, and you've shared with, uh, with your audience on this podcast, this is a learning experience as you go through. And there are certain parts of that that I found took a lot more time, a lot more energy on my part than what I would have anticipated. Yeah, so tell us about some of those things that you learned, either about the process of writing a book or even about yourself. What, what came to the surface as you were writing this book? Well, one of the things I learned about myself was that as self-motivated as I have perceived myself to be, 
I needed more of that external stimulation, that external encouragement than what I would have anticipated. I thought, okay, I'll just create this schedule and it'll be very mechanical. We'll just kind of roll through this. I'm a pretty structured and organized person. And yet, you know, even going back to one of your recent podcast interviews where you talked about discouragement and how do you overcome that, you know, that was one of the things that I learned was that, you know, I, I needed that, uh, you know, some of that self-leadership that I even write about in the book because what, what developed, and I don't know if you found this with other authors, and maybe this is being too transparent, but I've developed this love-hate relationship with my book, where there are some days I absolutely love it, and I think this is the best thing that I've ever done. Uh-huh. And then there are other days where I think, oh, I hate this book. This is the dumbest thing that I ever, I've ever done. Why didn't I put this time and energy and this money into something else? So all of that to say that I've learned that, uh, you know, there's those moments, those highs and lows, and you really have to have a strong sense of purpose to, to carry through. Wow. I, John, you could have not said it better. Uh, I, when I think about the books I've written, I think there are days when I think, wow, did I actually write that? That was, how did I even come up with that? And almost simultaneously, or a day later, I'll pick it up and think, this is crap. What was I thinking? So it, <laughs> yeah, it is, exactly. I, I, I do think that that, that that emotion, I think, is a very real emotion. And I, and I think that's what it means to create. And I, there is that humility that comes with, oh, I could have said that better. It, that doesn't discourage me, but it does keep me growing. Like, okay, next time I do this, I, I might do it this way. But I just think you captured perfectly uh, the emotion. So talk a little bit about, and we want to go into the launch piece of the book because that's really important, but talk a little bit about, did you land a publisher before you started the book, after you wrote one chapter, two chapters? Tell us a little bit about the process of landing a publisher. Yeah, working with one of my mentors I mentioned earlier, Mark LeBlanc, he is a a co-owner of a publishing company called Indie Books. And so that's who I chose to work with. And they're really a a hybrid. Uh, You know, one of the things that I've learned in this process, and I think you've also shared this message, is that, you know, no one's going to take as much of an interest in your book as you are. So no matter who you're working with as a publisher or as a marketing firm, you know, it's really going to come down to a lot of your efforts to, to make all of that happen. Uh, but I chose Indie Books largely because of my relationship with Mark and his partner, Henry DeVries, a lot of their connections within the professional speaking world, which those are doors that I'm hoping the book will, will open. And I had not really written anything in book form up to that point. I had a very Uh, uh, rough outline that came out of that training program that I mentioned earlier. So I use that as the, essentially the meat, you know, the middle section of the book where you've got the deepest content and then had to build around that. So hadn't really turned it into book form at that point before I got into that contract. And certainly they were good at uh, coaching me through working with an editor to help me learn how to you know, put things together in a, in a book form. Yeah, tell us about that experience of working with an editor. What did they do for you and what didn't they do for you that maybe you were expecting they would do for you? 
Well, I, I can't say that I expected to do them to do this for me, but they certainly didn't write the book for me. Uh, <laughs> there were certainly points along the way where I wanted, you know, as, especially as I was here, questions from, you know, my editor and, and different ideas and prompts. I, there would be times where I'd want to say, here, you take it. You know what you're talking about. Why don't you just write it for me? And of course, that wasn't going to happen. So I think one one of the things that I learned was that uh, there's not just one type of editor. You know, I've ended up with probably four or five different editors that have viewed my manuscript at one point or another. That doesn't even include my wife and my daughter who have had informally helping me uh, edit as I've gone along. But what they really helped me with was creating some structure, some continuity going through the book, and then even just thinking in terms of how do you bring together some of your own stories, stories from the marketplace, along with the principles and bringing that together in a way that it all integrates really well. There's some common thread through there. Uh, they helped me to find some common themes that would work through each chapter. Uh, I've got a lot of stories that are space related. And I opened the book with a story of Dorothy Vaughn, who's one of the characters from Hidden Figures. And uh, they, they really helped me to see how I could use that as part of this mission critical theme that the title is all about. And so, uh, and, and they pushed me. They weren't afraid to challenge me and to question me, to get me to dig deeper and harder to unearth, not just the common, very popular stories that you might read but some of the more obscure ones that help to emphasize points in the book. So I, I, they were really helpful to unearth that, even though at times I was, was like, ah, I'm just, I feel stuck. Help me get over this hump. Yeah, that's so great. And we're working with an author right now who is having difficulty making that transition from a story to the application of that story to the audience. Um, and I, I was pushing him to expand, like, well, what does this mean for your audience? And he couldn't answer that in the minute, in the moment. And I think that was probably that point of frustration where he's like, you just write it for me. But do you have any advice for authors who they receive some pushback from an, an, an editor saying, you need to give this some more thought? And you're like, I don't know where to begin. Do you have any advice for that moment in time? Well, I think the first word of advice would be that your editor is probably right. There's a good chance that they are totally on target, that you need to step back, give some more thought, do some more research, do some more homework, do some more writing. Um, what I found was that as I was going through that there were certain gaps where I had either, either intentionally left some space that I was going to come back to later or that the editor determined needed some additional content or some additional meat or perhaps some additional stories to help emphasize. And even though there were times where that pushback was hard because I knew it was gonna require more work on my part, I felt like it improved the final project uh, product in the end. I think what you're saying is so true. You just have to push through the hard. I, I love that. I love that mentality. And we did an episode once on the editor is almost always right. And <laughs> I like hearing that you think that the editor probably is mostly right. They are in that, that position for a reason. <laughs> and if you have an editor who is your advocate and, and, and why have an editor who's not your advocate, right? <laughs> can't imagine someone not being an advocate for the writer because that's your job is to take this wonderful creation and lift it up to, to give it more sunlight, to, to tease 
even the best ideas forward. That's the job of an editor. So let's talk a little bit about the launch of the book. So could you just describe when the book is going to be released? And I don't think it's released yet, correct? No, we're scheduled for an April 27th uh, grand opening, if you will, and there'll be a soft opening leading up to that date. So talk about both the soft opening and the grand opening. Talk about how you're preparing for that and what's involved in that. I think one of the biggest questions that came as I thought about writing the book, and I got it from a number of different sources, so I, I knew it was important for me to work on, was thinking about what are you hoping to accomplish with the book? What are your goals? You know, both in terms of, you know, how it might have impact your business, as well as any personal goals that might be uh, a part of that. And so it was helpful for me to really drill down and to go, okay, what do I want this book to do for me in the end? And a big part of it from a business standpoint is seeing the book as a door opener to additional paid speaking opportunities, opportunities to go into different organizations and do training, uh, coaching work that I do, uh, expanding some of the markets that I work in. And so that's really helped to shape my approach to the book launch and then the marketing that'll take place after that. And I, I really think of it in terms of two different tracks. There's the one-to-one -one and the one-to-many track. So the one-to-one -one side that I've been working on is working through my network of uh, former coworkers and former clients and people that I've connected with that are, uh, you know, peers within the, the consulting, coaching, speaking world who would be willing to help promote the book when it launches and write Amazon reviews or promote on social media, people that might be able to make introductions for conference speaking or to different companies that might hire somebody like me to do training. And thinking in terms of those one-on-one -on -one relationships, how do I engage those people, get the book in their hands so that they can uh, digest the content and, and provide those reviews and and, and do some of that promotion. And then there's the one-to-many side, which is more of the, the platform, you know, thinking about speaking opportunities, webinars that I might do to help promote the book, getting into some of those target, target audiences that I'm looking for, where it might generate some interest around the book, but even more so some of the more specific business opportunities that would come along with it. I love these two categories, the one-to-one -one and the one-to-many. That's a really fresh way, I think, for communicating how you can view the promotion of the book. And the one-to-one, -one, I like to say that there's really no ask too small because you don't know what that one ask will lead to. So I like that you're going after everyone in your, in your network and just asking them how they can support you because you never know what it's going to lead to. Have you gotten any warm responses yet And you're, as you've reached out? One fun story was in a conversation with a client that I've done some regular training and facilitation work for, uh, the, the idea of the book came up. I mentioned it, that I was working on it. And they're like, well, how much is it going to cost? You know, if we were to buy a, uh, in bulk, you know, would you provide us some kind of a discount? Would you sign the books for us? You know, so it was really fun to just kind of hear that off the cuff response when the mention of the book was just kind of in passing. It wasn't really designed to be anything promotional. So excited about those opportunities where people see value in the content and they want to get that out to their people. You know, obviously, you know, there's that hope that 
you know, out there, there's some larger companies that see this and say, this is something that we need. We need people to understand this concept of leading well in all directions. John, can we buy 500 of your books? Can we hire you to come in and talk to 500 of our people? And, and I trust that those opportunities will come in time, but I know it's not going to happen without working through my network and making those contacts uh, and, you know, really staying with it. This is not just a matter of a launch. As you said, when we got started, it's not just about writing the book. It's what do you do with it after the book is written? Talk a little bit about the actual publicity piece of it. So have you hired an outside publicity firm to help you with the launch? Yeah, I have a firm that I'm working with that's called Weaving Influence, and they specialize in book launches. So they support authors through uh, book launch team. They've got a regular team of people that frequently will review books. You know, different, you know, people obviously are interested in different subjects, different topical areas, but people who regularly will post reviews and do promotion on social media. So it's great to have that core of people that kind of know how that whole book promotion and book launch works and then expanding on that to more of that personal network where there may be people, you know, Melissa, you, you're interested in my book and you'll help me to promote it and launch it, but it's not something, you know, you're going to do for 10, 15, 20 other authors. It's more of a one-off opportunity. So they'll, they'll help to provide that core. And then the other part that uh, I'm working on with them uh, they've got a pretty good size audience that loves to see new books and particularly books that are in the business management leadership space where we'll do a grand opening promotional launch webinar that, you know, hopefully will draw hundreds of people and that will be a, a great source to expand my network as well. This sounds like a little bit different kind of PR firm. So there are some PR firms that would say, okay, we're going to get you on all these podcasts. We're going to get you into some online publications. Print publications are dead, so there's no print publications. Basically, do media relations, essentially. The press release, the media relations, and, and, and get you on to different platforms. So this sounds like a little bit different. Sounds like they have their own audience. So they have their readers who will review it and then post it to their social platforms. And then there's their own audience of people that they do webinars for. Is that correct? Yeah. What I've learned, Dave, is that there's a whole menu of options out there when it comes to these PR and marketing firms. And, and this company does offer that service. And what I've also learned, Dave, is that you can spend a whole boatload of money on the PR side. And I was, uh, I've been really fortunate. One of the things that's been a real blessing in this experience is how, how generous other authors have been in sharing from their experience. And there was one person that I talked to, don't know him personally, hadn't met him before, but we were able to get on a Zoom call and I can't remember the dollar amount, but he had spent somewhere between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars on, you know, a PR campaign to do all of those things that you just mentioned. And he feels like it's been worth it in the end. But at the same time, he's also wondered, you know, if I spent that same time and that same money down some other avenues with more direct outreach, you know, could I have gotten to the same or even better results? So. 
it's a real tough one to try to gauge what's going to be the best potential return on investment. You know, ultimately, when I get off of that initial launch week, almost everything is going to come right back to me to carry this thing on. And so I've got to have that plan for direct outreach. And my publisher has been really helpful in providing a, a framework, if you will, to help do that. That is so true. I think ultimately you can spend a lot of money on PR, but at the end of the day, when somebody reads the book, do they refer the book? And so it does come back. Now, yes, you have to do all these things, but at the end of the day, people have to want to refer the book. And it's really, really important that the book itself is, is referral worthy. <laughs> and that's on you as an author. And I also love the idea of, of this idea. It's also on you after the book launch. It's really on you as well. Yeah, and I think that's more true when you're more of that independent author who's not signed by one of the big publishing companies. You know, I mentioned John Maxwell earlier. He's got that name recognition where they can stick his book at the end cap at uh, Barnes and Noble and people are just going to see it as they go by and pick it up. And there are certainly other heroes in the management leadership space. I think of Ken Blanchard, Patrick Lencioni who have that name recognition that just someone seeing that there's a new book out by that author, oh, I've got to get that book. And I know that I'm a long ways from ever getting to that point if it, if it were ever to happen. And so it is, it's a matter of planting those seeds, cultivating, watering, fertilizing the ground, and, uh, and then you know, being ready to start harvesting when you start seeing that growth. So do you view yourself as writing more books like John Maxwell and being on that in shelf someday? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I laugh at your question on that, Melissa, because uh, I found it really interesting that at least in the author community, that question popped up even before I had barely gotten started on the book that I, you know, I'm working on right now. So, you know, this book hasn't even gotten one printed copy yet. And yet I get this question often about what's the next book. And it, it, it's really a helpful question because if a big part of writing a book is to gather your thought leadership and build the, the content that you wanna use in terms of speaking and training and all that, it's, it's really helps to open up that thinking and go, okay, yeah, what else is there? You know, so I've got this book, are there others? And what I learned, what I discovered in having to process that very question is that I really have a trilogy and this is the middle book in the trilogy. So this book is a little more for that, that, that mid-level manager who wants to ascend up to the executive level, certainly fits for the frontline supervisor, but uh, and, and any leader can gain from it. But I also see a book that's designed for that higher level, that person that's already gotten to the executive level. So that's the third book in the trilogy. The first one, if you go back to the very beginning, would be a book for that emerging want-to-be leader who hasn't gotten there yet and wants to know, what do I need to do to, to become a leader and then advance? From this book, what do you hope happens as a result of reading this book, other than handing it to 900 of his or her closest friends, right? But transformationally, what do you hope happens in his or her life? 
I think that's a great question. It's a real important one, Dave, as I was writing the book, because it, it really helps you to stay focused on what content and what stories and even some of the exercises, the what I call the coaching questions or application questions that go with each chapter, what will help to move that person along. And I, I think really, you know, you can use the term that they're going to become better as a leader. That's a little too generic, a little too nonspecific. I think this is someone who, as they read the book, they're going to do much better at engaging their team. The team that they lead, their direct reports are going to enjoy their work. They're going to feel fulfilled in their work, and they're going to want to put forth the discretionary effort that's going to help advance their team, advance the cause for the organization. This is a person who's going to play well in the sandbox with their peer leaders. You know, if you talk about department directors within an organization or a division of a bigger company, you know, they're the person that's going to help to break down the silos that often develop within any company. And also, you know, ultimately they're going to help to develop that pipeline of future leaders that can come in behind them, where they're starting to create that legacy of leadership, that pipeline of leadership, where their company has plenty of good candidates to promote from within anytime they've got an opening at a leadership level. And it's not that that's wrong to go outside the company. Sometimes that's important, that's necessary. But what's really sad is when you see companies where that pipeline is dry and they don't really have a choice to hire those next leaders from within. This is somebody that's gonna to help to keep that pipeline flowing. So we wanna encourage our listeners to go check out Mission Critical Leadership in April when it launches, if you're interested in leadership and becoming one of those types of leaders. Let's turn to our words of the episode. Dave, I will go first, how about that? Sounds I, good. I usually let you go first. This word I actually learned from you this week, Dave, and it's vagary. You used it in a sentence that you crafted for this newsletter that you're working on called Mode. And the sentence is, one story in particular illustrates the vagaries of the creative life and that of the entrepreneur. And I think this word is difficult for me because I always think of vagary as being like the word vague, and they're very different words. The word vagary means an unexpected and inexplicable change in a situation or in someone's behavior. It's like the vagaries of weather, the, like you said, the vagaries of the creative life. So Dave, thanks for introducing me to that word and how to use it appropriately. I'm glad you said that. Now I need to go back and look and see whether I actually used it correctly in that, in that article. <laughs> I think you did. I think it works. Uh, I hope so. I, got, I, do, I have to redline that thing or actually look at your red lines this afternoon at that and, and push that along. So thank you for that. So my word of the episode is restive restive. And it's this idea of stubbornly resisting control. So sometimes it's used of a, of a person. So he or she is restive. It's an adjective. He or she is unable to keep still or silent and becoming increasingly difficult to control. So I found the word I was read. Well, I know the word. I just hadn't really fully understood it. I was reading Mary Oliver, the great uh, poet, who I think won the Pulitzer Prize for some of her books on poetry, but she has, she's now gone. I think she just died in the last couple of years, but she had, uh, she has some essays in which she includes poems from other people, but the, the book is called Upstream is the name of the book, but here's her 
use of the word restive, which is so amazing. The most regretful people on earth are those who felt the call to creative work, who felt their own creative power, restive and uprising, and gave to it neither power nor time. Amazing. That sentence is amazing. So the way she uses restive is a way to describe creative power, this uncontrollable uh, urge and its uprising. So they felt their own creative power, restive and uprising, and gave to it neither power nor time. I read that and I went, holy cow. Well, you know, I was thinking about my life. Okay, what do I got to do? Where, where am I not giving it either power or time? So anyway, I thought it was a great quote, but the, I love the word and now I have to figure out how to use it. I'm so. going to try to use it also. You know, it reminds me of the word restless. I wonder if there's um, some etymological connection to rest, rest of restlessness, because there's huh. restlessness. There may be. Yeah, who knows? Anyway, what about you, John? You said that you had a word for the episode. What is your word? I'm so anxious to hear what it is. Yeah, it's actually more than a word. It's a, a Latin phrase or a little Latin term, sine qua non. And where that came from was I was reading a book on, or an article rather, on emotional intelligence by Daniel Goleman, who he wasn't the founder of the concept, but he's the one that back in the 90s really gave it some legs in, uh, in a business con context. And Daniel Goleman says that emotional intelligence is the sine qua non of leadership, which literally means, sine qua non means without which none. So in other words, what Daniel Goleman is saying is without emotional intelligence, there can be no leadership. And I've done a lot of training around emotional intelligence lately. It's become even more important around this season of the pandemic with all of the stress and strain on people and leaders really needing to tap into that emotional intelligence more than, than ever. And so that sine qua non, you know, without which none, got me to thinking, okay, what else? So Daniel Goleman says that there's no leadership without emotional intelligence. What else is there that if it's lacking, there can be no leadership? And so it's helped me to kind of build some of that concept around leadership. What is that essential ingredient in order for it to happen? What I love about this is that reading is learning. All of us read something this week that has caused us to be more thoughtful and to think more deeply about different principles. So thanks for sharing your word or uh, your phrase. I feel enlightened and more so, thank you so much for sharing your book writing journey with our audience. You had so many delightful and insightful and wise things to say. We really appreciate your time, John. Well, it's been a joy. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Melissa. It's uh, really a privilege to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much, John. Looking forward to seeing more of your posts on LinkedIn. I follow you closely. I watch everybody that you like, and I'm like, okay, if John liked them, then I need to see what they said. So, uh, John, I'm stalking you. Well, there's, uh, there, there, there are a lot worse people that I could have stalking me than Dave Getz. I've always appreciated your encouragement. This rounds out our episode. Dave, do you want to talk a little bit about Road Trippers before we sign off? So we have a... Uh, membership group called Road Trippers, which we are actually launching in May. We will enroll four times a year, and it's a monthly men membership coaching for writers, and it's only $66 a month, 
and we talk about all the subjects that we talk about on our podcast, everything from book writing to publishing to self-publishing to book promotion. Right now, we are doing a weekly Q&A every Tuesday at 3.30 p.m. Central. So the way to get that Zoom link is to jump on Facebook, search for Road Trippers. There's several Road Trippers groups. Jump on and ask to join the group. We'll let you in. And we have several conversation threads that are always running, but we'll also post the Zoom link and you can join that group. It is really a dynamic group and has a just a diverse diverse group of authors. It's just amazing uh, the different types of writing that's going on there. So if you want to join that, be sure to do so. And we look forward to seeing you. So with that, I think that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.